Bandwidth for This Week in Photography is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at D-R-O-B-O dot com slash twip. everyone we're back back for yet another episode of this week in photography this is alex and uh, we have the regular crew or well most of the regular crew uh steve simon in uh, new york hey steve hey guys good to be here ron brinkman in seattle nope oh i missed it hermosa beach hermosa beach i escaped from the snowy seattle to the somewhat cool but not snowing hermosa beach area it was freezing here in tokyo yeah, I mean, it's well, chilly here in Hermosa. It's, you know, in, in the 50s, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole West Coast is out, uh, you know, with their compensation uh, button set to plus one because of all the snow. It's been yeah. crazy out there. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> yeah it, it was really pretty intense in Seattle. And, and the city can't deal with it. They have, I think, one snowplow, so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, coming in from San Jose, uh, we've got Fred Johnson. I am in San Jose, and it's, you know, it's not that cold here. You guys, you, I think yesterday it was rainy, but I, we were in like the 40s and 50s, and it was toasty. You know, I saw people with shorts on outside. Now, Aaron, uh, well, see, the thing is, is, if you're in Minnesota, seeing people in shorts outside just means it's above 32. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. They might go swimming, too. So right? it just depends on it. it. depends on where you are and who they are. Now, Aaron, how, how, how is it in Virginia? It's uh, it's a pleasant 38 degrees right now. I'd still like it to actually be a little colder, and I'd like snow. But tomorrow is supposed to be an absurd, like, 65. I kid yeah. you not. Yeah. It's, it's just ping-pongs out here right now. It was 10 degrees the other night. It was in the 50s the next day. It's going to be 60 this weekend. It'll be freezing again in a couple of days. I don't get it. Al Gore. Now, it's now, all Al Gore's fault, man. Is. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, he, he brought it on. <laughs> somehow somehow he goes from being the person that warned us this is this is truly killing the messenger right it was it's like there wasn't any global warming until al gore talked about it and then look, look at where we are so, the, oh. <laughs> so now one thing you'll notice is that scott is not with us he's been he is taking he's going to be taking a little bit of a lesser role in the in the show uh, scott's uh, schedule has been very hectic over the last uh, couple months and it doesn't look like it's going to improve. So uh, we actually, I actually pre-recorded a workflow conversation that's going to be in this show. Uh, but he's not going to be uh, a regular uh, co-host on the show um, as we go into uh, the new year. Uh, Scott just is, is unable to, uh, you know, keep up with the rigorous preparation and scheduling that we have here at TWIP. He is a busy guy, but he he's going to try and be here as much as he possibly can. Yes, yes. So he's uh, he is he's just going to be. Uh, his, it's just mostly working with his schedule. So we'll we'll still have Scott in and out uh, during as we go on. Uh, our connection to Twip Photo will be uh, the same. So uh, so stay tuned for that and make sure to keep on going to Twip Photo. And uh, and we, as I said, you'll hear Scott a little bit later. 
uh, on this show. So, so, so stay tuned for that. Uh, in, in fact, there is still a linking contest at twipphoto.com. You can win some great packages from, from uh, Scott's 88 Secrets, as well as a one-year premium subscription to lynda.com. So make sure to check that out. And, uh, and uh, there's also an Aperture Nature Photography Contest. Check that out at twipphoto.com. And uh, we have another, we have one other uh, invitation from Twip, from, from twipphoto.com uh, is what's your favorite Twip moment? It's so hard. It's so hard to define us inside of a moment. Where do but, you start? Exactly. Well, here's, here's, where, here's the suggested start. It could be the best 30-second podcast clip, the best story that you saw on the blog, the best comment on the blog, uh, the best uh, picture you saw on the blog or in the Flickr pool, uh, best contest or contest winner, uh, best contest or contest winner, uh, and it's extra credit. There's extra credit here. There's, you get, you'll get a gold star for anyone who has the production skills and wants to put together a two-minute mashup or montage of some of our podcasts. Uh, that's just totally up to We're just throwing it out there if you want to do it. Uh, there's some, uh, Scott, I think, is working on some spiffy prizes. So, so uh, take care, look at that. And uh, that is, you can go to twipphoto.com and uh, find out more information about that. And finally, on the Twip News we have, you, you can nominate Twip for a Shorty Award. So this is Twitter's 2008 Shorty Award. Uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes at twipphoto.com. Oh, a short, Shorty Award's a good thing. Like, it's a, it's a positive award. It's a good one. It is. It is a, a Shorty Award. It, that's what I'm told. I'm told that a Shorty Award <laughs> is, is, uh, is good. And uh, we are, right now, we're leading, the, we're the leading photography category in the photography category. So by a decent margin, according to... Uh, to Aaron, we are doing well, Aaron. Uh, when I looked earlier this morning, putting the script together, we were we were about half again ahead of the next one, I believe. So, 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 but we don't want to take anything for granted. Yeah, just like uh, Obama said before the election, you know, exactly, still, nope, exactly. We're, we're 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 on our way to being king of, kings of the world. Uh, and and, and in, it means thousands of dollars to us as well if we win, right? <laughs> No, no, it doesn't mean yeah. anything. It's just not so much. No. We just, we just, okay. What do we win, Alex? I'm not even sure if we get a stick rights. I mean, yeah, I think we just get bragging rights. I think that's that's all that's all that's really available there. But I can I can tell people I won a short a shorty award. Exactly, and then they're like, and they'll ask you, is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going there. You guys can have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so make sure to, it's in the show. There's links in the show notes where, of where you can go, but uh, please vote for us. That would be awesome. And a follow-up to the Polaroid conversation that we had uh, last week. Brian Reynolds uh, said that, the, that photo, uh, Polaroid is selling their quote-unquote last buckets of Polaroid film. Uh, it, this is at polopremium.com. Uh, if you want to buy it, it's we're really coming to the end of uh, a Polaroid film. So, does this mean? Do you know if this, uh, Aaron? Do you know if this means that they're we're not going to have any SX seventy, anything like that? Is it is it all going? Uh, according to the Brian Reynolds comments on the blog um, that they announced earlier this year that they were going to stop making film entirely. Wow. So, uh, I would assume that's where it's headed. I mean, hence his last buckets comment. But yeah, the other little note he had in there too, though, was that the uh, the larger format, the Type 55 PN sheet film, um, mm -hmm. was his favorite film. But that uh, folks that were using the large 20 by 24 stuff managed to get some type of license to continue its production. And uh, I haven't had a chance to. Really I don't think I've ever that. seen a 20 by 24 Polaroid. Have I? Image. 
but man, it sounds like it's very spectacular. I mean, obviously huge, and the camera that makes it is is the size of a small room. But it's how do you very shake that to get it to develop there, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> Live in California. That's a very good question. <laughs> Yeah, the I I really love. I did Polaroid transfer for a while as kind of a little process, you know, as a process, and uh, really enjoyed it. Of course, what happened with me, and I think this is Polaroid's problem, is I I got into Polaroid transfer, and then I and then I after about three or four weeks of doing it, I figured out how to do it in Photoshop. <laughs> yep. I was like, there's a set of filters that'll do this. I don't I don't think I need to really do this with the film, and then that was the. That was the end of it. Uh, DP Review turns 10. I can't wow. believe DP Review has been around that long. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it, does it? I mean, I know, I'm sure I didn't discover it 10 years ago, but I've been following it for a long time. But 10 years, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty impressive. Is the web this, that isn't, old? It kind of, isn't it like dog years? I mean, the blog has not even been around all that long. So 10 years almost seems like 100 years for a... So every time I hear, all I think of every time I hear, hear 10 years is gross point blank. 10 years, 10 years, 10 years. <laughs> so, so it's been here for 10 years. They have, uh, they, they really, they're using this opportunity to celebrate and, and they have a new labs section where they're starting to experiment with new things on the website. Challenges being one. Hmm. I wonder where they thought of that. So the, <laughs> so they uh, definitely check out DP review uh, the, in their new anniversary. It's, you know, that's kind of the go-to site when you're trying to, I know, I know when I'm thinking about a camera that yeah. is, it is on it's, the top of the list. The, absolutely. It's the go-to site for sort of technical information about cameras. And then it's also right. the go-to site really for, it must be the largest kind of community of photographers if you really have a specific question and you want to try to get an answer to it. Yeah. Um, I, as long I, as you're willing to, I was going to say, as long as you're willing to take the abuse that may go with it. Yeah, there, there is a lot of abuse in those discussion forums. But I mean, how many of you guys, when you look at a, uh, a new camera, those comprehensive reviews, or what are they, like 100,000 words, I usually go to the first page, then I go right to the conclusion. That's exactly yeah, what I do. Right to the <laughs> end. Sometimes the sample images, you know, but yes, absolutely. Yeah. We are busy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it is great, though, if you really want to dig into a camera. If I, if I get to the point where I'm really, this is the camera I think I'm going to get, I, I usually find myself reading almost the entire review to make sure that it's, you know, there's oftentimes little gotchas, because I think, I think all of us are fairly particular about, you know, what we need from a camera. And, uh, and so I often read through it to make sure I'm not going to get a gotcha. Yeah. Now, as much as much as I do jump to the conclusion, I think you're right, Alex. I mean, if I was getting the actual camera, then I will sort of soak it all in. And it's nice to know it's there if you if you need it, if you want to really go over every little bit. Right. Uh, so congratulations to Phil Askey for uh, having that out for 10 years uh, in uh, one thing to check out. This is not really the site of the week, but uh, definitely check it out. It's Joy in Sorrow. In 2008, this is Chicago Tribune's best of approach for 2008, and it's a great little. It's it's just a little movie, really. It's it's a movie it's of a little just slideshow. Yeah. yeah, it's a little slideshow, uh, and it's you know it's really good. So definitely check it out. Uh, finally, uh, the DX. Oh, I'm sorry, not the D. The D3Xs, the Nikon D3X, have landed. They're here, and Fred is going to run out. Fred is Fred is on his way out to buy one. <laughs> no, I'm not. You know, if if I was to go out and buy a D3 or a D3X, 
my uh, my D seven hundred would would hate me because all the all the crap I've been talking about the D. I mean, I love the D three X. I I think it's a great camera, especially for people that need those pixels, Steve Simon. But uh, the 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 you know for for average folk like me, you know, the D seven hundred is just you know it's fine. So I want I want to see the lines. I wonder if people are lining up for that D three X. So this is and we I'm gonna move this up from a from a question that we had uh, earlier on. There is a there is a thought process that's starting to build up, and I think Ron's mentioned it in the past. That there's a question about whether the D3 is just simply the same sensor as the D3X, and it's simply downsampling mm. to 12.3. I don't yeah. think that's the case. This a listener kind of tossed this in there. I guess we got, allegedly I said something like that in a previous podcast or wondered about it, but I don't actually think that's the case. But, okay. I mean, theoretically, there's you know there'd I, be a lot to the, be gained. The, yeah, the thinking behind it is that you know if you if you oversample, you take a twenty four megapixel image and then you combine these uh, individual pixels into a lower resolution image, you are able to reduce noise, which it's a valid. It's called binning. It's, I mean, it's a valid technical thing that's done with CCD arrays sometimes, but um, it's not. It's not as good as just having a, be- a bigger photo site. There's there's a lot of technical reasons for why you sort of have to get above a a noise threshold and just combining pixels as a post-process isn't necessarily the way to go. But um, I, what I would like to see, I think the point behind it is that it would be cool if, you know, for certain cameras that might be an option for doing it. But I don't think that's actually what's being done with this. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that's the case. Right. Yeah, that that was a bit of a, an urban myth, I think. I mean, Ron, I, I'm, I'm sure you know much more about the the technical side of the the sensors than than I do, but but we we heard a little bit about that. I mean, that would be um, kind of like a you know a fairy pointing to you saying you can now play the piano. I mean, a D three's got a it's a twelve megapixel sensor, and to sort of you know flick a switch to make it a twenty four megapixel sensor with all the 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 things that come with that uh, sounds kind of unrealistic, no? Well, it is yeah. except except for the fact that you know it, what you know if, if they were simply hiding. The, the fact that you were getting a full, a full frame, because I do this a lot. If, 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 even if I need a photo at a certain size, obviously I'm going to shoot at a very high resolution knowing that when I sample down, if I take, I can shoot 1600, if I'm shooting for the web, for instance, I can shoot 16 IS, 1600 ISO and you're not going to really notice if you're looking at it at 640 by 480 or 640 by 360 or whatever, or three, because it's being sampled down so much that all that noise uh, is uh, is gone. Yeah, I, I just uh, it seems to me that somebody would have taken the uh, taken the, the camera apart. apart already and determined this by now if that was really right. the case. Right, right. So, so anyway, so that 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 I think we put that one to bed. Uh, we've got site of the week here. Ron uh, has this one. Uh, this is Rachel Hulin, a photography blog. Ron, can you give us a little more information? Well, first of all, let me explain how the side of the week tends to work around here. Uh, <laughs> some some days it's a, a well thought out, well considered process where you know something that comes across our radar and we're able to talk about it and uh, decide this really great side of the week. And sometimes there's an email from Aaron about 20 minutes before the show saying, "I need one." Um, anybody have a side of the week? <laughs> now, not to take anything away from the site because because what I did then was I did a little googling around for what uh, you know some certain keywords like favorite new photography site. And uh, looked at several of them, and and but this one kind of actually caught my eye. And for me, the reason why is, I mean, generally when I'm looking around the web at, at photography-related stuff, what I like to see is not necessarily awesome, great photos, but 
photos that just give me an idea for something I might want to try. Right. And that's what I saw. There's there's sort of three different images in here that uh, Rachel mentions that, uh, you know, I, I see it and I sort of extrapolate from there saying, oh, you know, that's, that's a cool technique. I'm not necessarily digging the actual photo as, you know, the best photo ever. But, you know, there was a shot on their site of um, – some people backlit and their shadows were cast on a chain link fence and had an interesting look to it. And there was some night photography of flowers where they were using the light to throw everything else in blackness behind it. And uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I just, like I said, it caught my eye. I didn't spend, I won't claim to have spent a whole lot of time. I did make sure that uh, she was sort of blogging regularly so it's not just a flash in the pan kind of site. And, and I'm going to go back and look at it a little bit more. So that's, that's the history behind it. And and this is a good opportunity for us to if if you are looking at if you have a if you have a site that you think that we've missed make sure to make sure to go to twipphoto.com and uh, send us some suggestions and uh, we'll keep on going. We obviously have the sites that that we like, but after fifty some episodes, if, I think we're at nearly fifty. I don't know what episode number this is. Sixty two. Sixty two. We've done more. Somehow we've done more. Oh, because we have videos and everything. We else. We count the videos. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So because this is the this is uh, our last. Actually, we have one more before we're at a full year since we started recording. So uh, we're always looking for new ones, so make sure to send them in. Now, we've got the photo assignment continues. Humor, funny or not. It could be, it could be unfunny humor, which oftentimes happens. So make sure to check that out. Uh, and uh, you can off, obviously go also to the Flickr discussions and critique groups. Uh, poll of the week, last week, do you calibrate your monitor? And this was pretty evenly broken down. Uh, I was actually surprised at how many people said they use a dedicated hardware calibration system. I was too. I was. Uh, yeah, that's the largest number. Thirty-three point eight percent. A third of our listeners use something like a Spider or a Huey uh, calibration tool to uh, to make that work. I'm. I'm I was fascinated. Well, I I'd be wondering. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say. Apparently, uh, you know, because I think it was last week we mentioned, or at least I mentioned that I don't bother all that much with calibration. I actually do the. Uh, uh, the sort of built-in monitor calibration that comes with the OS, and that's about it, claiming that you know most of the stuff I post on the web is going to be viewed on such a wide variety of monitors that it doesn't really matter. Apparently, we got plenty of hate mail uh, directed at me for saying that, <laughs> which is fine. Bring it on. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, and, and that's certainly what I do is, is just the kind of eyeball calibration. And, I mean, granted, I've been doing this for a lot of years, so... Um, you know what you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, it, yeah. The, advanced, the advanced calibration doesn't work very well unless you've been using it. I think you, you have to have started to use it with Photoshop in like 1995. I think that's kind of the, when, it, when, it, when it makes sense for some reason. Uh, I, I know no, I, 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 I was going to say, Alex, I think, I think this, these questions are great, but I think that another added layer of dimension to it would have been, you know, yeah, you may have a spider and you may have used it, but do you use it regularly? You know, right. because your monitor is dying over time and lights changing and all well, and this that's stuff. the big thing to remember is that is that your monitor is being affected by where you put it. It's affected by the light outside. It, it whether it's a especially if you have these crazy things called windows. Mm. I, you know, I've <laughs> I've heard of the people having these where they have their computer. I mean, yeah. it's it is insane. It's an insane yeah. thought. But some people have windows near their computers, and and, 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 and light comes through them. <laughs> right. And if anyone's seen what used to be my office, the recording studio in, in San Francisco used to be my office, and I literally, it has no windows. And it, uh, I handed, when the guy, when we built the office, I handed the guy a 18% gray card. 
and I just, and he said, what color should I make the room? And I said, I want to be that color. <laughs> so I, I had the perfect room for, for calibrating a monitor. It was 18% gray, no windows. And that's really the way if you're using, if you really want to get serious, in my opinion, that's the, everybody should just make their, uh, fo- their, their computer room 18% gray with no windows. The other, the other thing that uh, sometimes people forget is, you know, they go through all this expensive and extensive calibration, but then when the prints come out of the printer, they sort of, you know, hold it to their face under an incandescent bulb and go, hey, that's perfect. But you really need to have a, a, a good, consistent, certain brightness, you know, daylight temperature light that you view your stuff in. Well, and, so and, that- and, yeah, and that's really the point is it's it's not all that useful to calibrate unless you're doing it in the context of how is the image going to be viewed eventually. I mean, you know, sure, if you want to calibrate it for yourself, for your own viewing, in your own viewing environment, that's fine. But realistically, you know, it, it's, it should always be about how's it, how's it going to be viewed. What's the entire pipeline of what the image is going to go through? And you have to calibrate the entire pipeline if you're really going to get serious. Yeah, and you guys remember the darkroom days when you used to like print for a lot of prints, and then you know, so you 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 finish your printing, you printed like twenty prints in seven hours, and then the next day you look at all the stuff, and it's all consistently too dark because you didn't you know view the stuff properly, your eyes hadn't adjusted, yada yada. It's it's the same pitfalls that people fall into when it yeah. comes to printing, even when they do make the effort to calibrate sometimes. Right. Yeah, so I, I don't want to, I mean, I, I am a complete believer in well-calibrated color pipelines, you know, through and through. I, I have no, no questions that that is the way to go uh, when it's color critical work where it's a well-defined output medium. I mean, I've spent more hours in a screening room dealing with extraordinarily small changes in color trying to get something right. But you kind of know, okay, this is going to be shown in a film projector and there are industry standards for, you know, what's the light output for a projector and measured from 15 feet in front of the screen and all those sort of things. But, you know, for me personally, when stuff gets thrown on the web and I know that, you know, my mom with whatever kind of a setup she has is going to see it and it's going to be different from what my sister sees, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So continue the hate mail. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we got a new poll. Looking back on 2008 uh, and in your personal photography, uh, what was the biggest move? What was the biggest move for you? Uh, and we've got a bunch of options here. Picking up a digital camera for the first time. Moving from uh, from a point and shoot to a DSLR, upgrading your DSLR significantly, expecting unexpectedly selling some photos, going to uh, going from just shooting for fun to seriously shooting on the side for extra income, making a move from your old career to being a full time photographer, or listening to every word. Yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, <laughs> go Fred, go. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Or listening to every word of TWIP and setting your sights on all of the above in 2009, which is the proper answer. No, I'm just kidding. You can, any of those, (laughs) any of those answers will work. Uh, uh, or, or, you know, I think that, uh, getting on Twitter, I think that one's, that was a, that was a big move for, uh, Steve and his Twitter family. It was, it was. Yeah. You got to, the whole family was discussing that over a Christmas dinner. (laughs) <laughs> you were discussing no, Twitter exactly. over Christmas dinner, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he brought up the whole family of followers, and uh, that's not uh, really true. But if if I could have dinner with all my followers, I would love that. Absolutely. Now, and, and that and that segues right into the, the the second question we have for Steve is how is your Drobo? How is your Drobo, Steve? Uh, Drobo is doing just great. I'm I'm touching it again. I, I always. <laughs> You know, I didn't. I don't think we should really talk about that on the show. You know, that, that's all I'm saying there. You know, the, so but now. 
I, I've just, I, I think I may have mentioned last week, I don't know when I put in the, the now I've got four full bays of one terabyte uh, drives in there. I still have about 2.2 gig uh, terabytes of, of space. I mean, it's like, you know, having this beautiful house and now I'm just going to, you know, slowly uh, furnish it. And uh, it's, it's doing good. It's, it's quiet. I don't hear it. I see the green lights and I see the little blue lights on the bottom. I'm actually um, thinking um, when I get a second one, can you stack the Drobos? You can. That not recommend. You can stack them. I don't know if they really lock into each other, but they stack pretty good. Oh, no, they, they don't lock in, but I'm just worried about, like, the ventilation and so on. No, I, I don't think they ventilate from the top. So I think that they ventilate from the, from the front and the back through, back. front to back. Uh, they okay. pull the because you'll you'll see that there's little vents on the front and then it pushes through the back and so they're because uh, I've I've had uh, a couple of them stacked uh, I it's it's really great when you first get one and it seems like a lot of space and now I, I seem to uh, it, for me it's not so much like slowly building up a you know filling a new house it's more like you know having the house there and then having this big truck go beep 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 and it's full <laughs> so uh, that's yeah I have I have all the furniture I just have to you know take the time and I'm hoping to do that before the year is out so that you know by next week I'll have you know kind of organized my archives which is one of my goals over the the Christmas New Year's break and and uh, the, the, you know for those of you who haven't heard us talk about Drobo which is I think for all four of you of course Drobo is a really intelligent uh, intelligent and automated storage device uh, it comes with up to four hard drives. You can put one through, well, two through four, really, up there. But it gives you a redundant backup so that uh, if you don't, you don't lose any of the data, you can expand it. You don't have to have all the same drives. You don't have to have them all be the same size. All that stuff is figured out inside of the box. So it's a lot more uh, flexible than, than something like a RAID 5, which is what a lot of people would use, and it's a lot less complicated. So and, definitely and check Coincidentally, they're a sponsor of the show. Coincidentally, they are a sponsor of the show, and so I was uh, I was going to tell our listeners. I'm still going to tell our listeners about the fifty dollars off. So you can get uh, fifty dollars off uh, if you go to drobostore.com/slash/twip. Uh, you can you can actually uh, uh, get fifty dollars off the FireWire. The the USB one is gone. It's history. I've got six of them, but I'm not giving them up. I have a classic USB. You have a classic. Yeah, I have the USB. And, uh, um, but, uh, I have, well, actually have a bunch of them and I, you know, to me, the USB was fine. Although the 800, it's a lot faster. No, you have, still has USB on it. Correct. You have an 800, right, Alex? It, no, is no it, I don't have any. You don't have an 800 yet. I, I, I tested an 800, but I, 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 the ones that I got are actually USB and I'm quite happy with them because I don't use them for performance drives. You know, for us, a raid that needs performance is fiber channeled in and it's, you know, 300 megs a second or whatever. And yeah, I haven't, had, I haven't had any problems with mine, and I, uh, I've got movies and all sorts of things stored on my Drobo, and I serve them up to the, to the Apple TV in the living room, and, you know, it's, it's, it's fast enough to keep up with, you know, sending high-definition video through the line or over yeah. the air, so I'm happy with it. Yeah, very good. Let's clarify to listeners, too, that the Drobo 800 has USB. The yeah. USB ones are gone, meaning the USB only ones are gone. Right, right. But don't so have to have FireWire 800 to have a Drobo. Perfect. Yeah. So, the, so, the, so you you do you can still have USB, uh, and, and it's very popular here. One thing I learned in in Japan is that there's almost no FireWire. It's, it's it is literally you go into a store and it's almost all USB at this point. Maybe it's that way in the United States too. I don't. I, I think I just go to the app. To me, a computer store is the Apple store because <laughs> it's a block. I just away. want to know if, if when Steve's done, if he's going to get all his data on there and then have the ceremonially, you know, artificial yanking of a drive. 
Just, <laughs> oh, there you oh, go. No, that's, I don't think I'm ready for that. <laughs> Alex will come do it. <laughs> exactly. He's got, he's got to push the button. That's all I got to say. Just push the button. So we're gonna we're gonna actually talk about workflow here, and we, I, I Scott actually, I, I talked to him a little bit earlier, and we're gonna insert that right here, uh, and then we're gonna come back and talk about our own workflows. So here's Scott and I talking a little bit about his workflow as he starts to go through the process. So Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about how you approach your workflow when it comes to photography. Alex, I try to get as much of my workflow done in the field as I can. I try to look at the camera as the first place to go in the workflow. <laughs> well, how do, how, what, do you, what, what does that mean? How do you actually do a lot of this in the field? Because I think a lot of times people are just out there just you know, kind of shooting. They, they look at the camera at the beginning as I'm just gathering information. Well, I, I try to approach it a little bit differently. Number one, I want to get only the shots I think I really need. And when I was new at photography, I'd shoot, you know, you know, thousand shots of everything like everybody else. Hit the motor drive and let let go. But now I'm much more deliberate. Uh, one of my students was with me on a field trip and had about 12 students out there and everybody was blasting away. And I think I took three pictures all day but all three of them were winners. I try to just be very selective. That's part of my workflow because if you take a million pictures, what do you got to do? That means you got to import a million pictures and you got to look through a million pictures. So that's where I start. I start with just fewer photographs than I used to take. Right. Number two, I well, try and, to make... And, and to, to go on that, I think that that's the, that's the, real, te the real temptation for people uh, because of the digital, you know... Uh, revolution right. is that you know we have you know we put a two gig card or eight gig card or 16 gig card in our camera and we can fire off a thousand photos without changing the camera at all uh, and, and I, I used think, I used to do that and then I realized how long it took to edit a thousand photos well and, and, and how long it takes to and then the, the other thing is then you get into this decision process I know I'm dealing with that constantly I'm I'm, I'm working on a set right now and I'm, I'm probably taking you know two to Two to three hundred photos a day, or or, or more, and uh, of, of reference stuff as as well as behind the scenes. And I am it's it's hard because I'm I'm, I'm constantly filling up drives. I'm constantly filling up yep. uh, storage, and and then you have to go through it and figure out which ones do you really want to get rid of and compare it to the last one, and you know that type of thing. Yeah, that's that's an issue. I I mean I will shoot a lot of photos. Like if I go to Bosque del Apache, I'm doing flight shots. You know, I'm letting go a nine-frame burst every 10 seconds, and I just have to deal with it. But if I can be more contemplative, I will. Right. The second thing I do is I try to organize uh, the information I shoot and get it down. For instance, if I'm, if I'm going to do some HDRs and I want to remember that I did HDRs, I just always have a pen in my pocket, and I write an H on my hand. I put it out in front of the lens. I take a right. picture of my hand, right. and then I, I put the H up before and after the HDR so I don't right. forget those. Um, if I'm shooting sports, for instance, when I fill in for the guys at the, the newspaper, I'll shoot the scoreboard clock before every quarter in a basketball game, knowing that right. every frame that comes between that quarter is easily identified as a shot that was made in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. So I do those sort of workflow things, too. They're just little things you can think about that, that streamline what you're doing in the field so that when you get into Aperture or Lightroom or whatever you use, you're not going to have to sit there and go, now, what the heck was I thinking about there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. You know what you were thinking about when you shot it. And, and right. you're not, and, and especially if you're shooting 300, 500 photos, and you're not getting to really dig through them for a, a week or two weeks, you know, after you shot, uh, you know, that that's going to make a huge difference. I was with a student the other day who shot a bunch of HDRs, 
pulled them in Aperture. Eh, deleted them. Just said, what, these, what am I doing with these? These look crappy. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> and he forgot that he was shooting those as HDRs. So, Oops. yeah, that's, that's part of that problem. So then I try to do everything using a folder structure, Alex. For mm-hmm. me, that's the secret. I'm not telling anybody else what to do. I'm just saying what I do. Right. I start with a folder structure. So in Aperture, which is my preferred software, I have folders that say things like scenics, wildlife, people, commercial jobs, photojournalism, etc. So within each of those folders, I'll import my projects. So I have instead so of there's this projects un- inside un- there's projects inside these folders. Correct. Correct. Okay. So instead of this unwieldy long list that's a mile long, I've just got a fairly short, you know, half screen full of things to look at. Those are my basic categories, if you will. Right. And then uh, using Aperture, we we have what we call projects, which is basically the container for all the images you put into a job. And there's something similar in Lightroom and something similar in Breeze Browser, whatever you might use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I put each project in the appropriate folder and I name it based on the date and the location. Right. So for me, that helps me to remember what's, you know, just generically as I'm looking through. Right. Oh, yeah, that was the shot at Bosque in 09 versus the shot at Bosque in 06. Right. Uh, that, that's kind of important if you do a lot of work at one particular place or a lot of work with one particular subject. And while that information is, is in, in the photo themselves, it's just not on the surface. It, it just means more work. And, and if you're going through a thousand photos, an extra minute or two makes a big difference. Right, right. My next step is pretty simple. I just like to immediately cull the images I know I don't want. In Aperture, you can hit 9, which rejects the image. It doesn't delete it, which is important. It's still there. I can always go back later if I'm an old man and can't take pictures anymore and see if I can make lemonade lemons. But it gets it off my screen and leaves me with the ones I want. Aperture also lets you do a thing called stacks, which is kind of cool because you can search through images that are all quite similar, shot over just a few seconds in relationship to each other. And promote the best one. Now, when with number uh, when you hit nine, where does where does that image go? It, it stays in your overall library, but it just it, it's just kind of it suppressed. Just disip- yeah, it just disappears off the screen. Okay. You can you can change the criteria to look at it again. It doesn't actually delete it. Many beginners to Aperture go, oh my gosh, all my images are gone. Right. They're not. They're still right. there. The, the, you just have to change the search criteria in order to see them. It's just a way of uncluttering the screen, and and we're all trying to get to that gold. I mean, right. I, I remember the first picture you showed me of your son right. and, uh, you know, with your famous 50 millimeter lens <laughs> and he had, had the big smile. And I'm sure that picture leapt out at you right. when you were looking at it. But had you had 500 pictures that were similar, it'd be much harder to find that good one. And I've actually seen people miss the gold because right. they have too many choices. So what I like to do and the way I approach it, now not everybody does it different, but for me, I just like to get the crap off the screen that I know I'm not going to keep. Right. Then, then I go down to rating real quick. And I, I should mention, I forgot one step. When I do my import, I keyword and copyright, regist- I put my copyright symbol and my name on all that stuff during the import so I don't have to do right. it later. Right. That's a real. I should have mentioned. There's that. a That's lot a of real, information with with most of these that you with most of these uh, organizational software, whether it's Lightroom or Aperture or whatever you're using, right. that you can put you can handle all that while you're there on set, and it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I do it on the import, so I, I'll just and I'm not one to use a zillion keywords. I think some people overdo keywords. I mm-hmm. my rule is no more than four or five keywords tops, and two or three is where I prefer to be. Right. Uh, you know, because they'll get me close enough. Um, you know, I'll say avian, which means it's a bird photograph. I'll say raptor, 
which means, you know, obviously it's right. in the raptor family. And then I might go down a third keyword and say eagle. Right. Uh, but, but that's about as far as I'll go. But I do that on import. Then when I go to looking at the images and, and I start rejecting immediately all those that I don't want, then I start rating and I rate four or five stars. Five stars are the ones I know I'm going to keep. Four stars are the ones I might. Right. Once I get that all done, I change my search criteria so only those show. Now my screen's right. got even less images on it. And I start viewing those full screen to check them for sharpness and color accuracy. And I go into do my very basic edits. I'm one of those people that likes to have kind of a two-minute rule. Once I've got an image on the screen that I know I'm going to keep, I don't want to spend more than two minutes editing it and getting it ready to go. Right. So if I, if I got to spend more than two minutes on it, it's probably going to be four stars and I'll deal with it a little Right. Yeah, I just like to really be quick. And Aperture, I'm able to do things fairly quickly, get the basics done. The only time I'll violate the two-minute rules if I'm doing a portrait and I have to do eye retouching and stuff like that. Then I'll spend an extra four or five minutes. But well, and I think, uh, and, and this is a, a definitely a photographer's approach. You know, I think that there's some people who have a Photoshop pro approach, <laughs> right? <laughs> who, right. Who you know, I'll fix everything. You know, I have a bad habit. You know, I, my. Uh, my wife uh, gets upset when I'm when I'm taking lots of photos because she knows what I'm doing is that uh, you know if 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 I get two bad you know bad faces in in two different uh, photos you know I I marry them together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when I I'll, I'll try you know I will save some stuff for later that I know I might have to do more work on, but I try to go through and get the real winners. Right. You know, if you do it right in camera, Alex, you shouldn't need to spend more than a couple of minutes. Right. In post. Right. And I and I you know I spent most of my photographic career shooting for slides. There's no latitude. You got to get it right. Right. And and now that I don't have to, it doesn't mean I'm not going to. So I, I try to get it right in the camera. Yeah. And then I don't have to do much with it. I will occasionally spend an extra two minutes in one of the Aperture plugins, like Silver Effects Pro, for instance. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't spend a lot of time. I get them ready to go. And then... Uh, you know, the next step in, in the workflow is output because it doesn't do any good to have these images if you're not showing them to someone. I usually shoot for, you know, money. So right. I, I have to output the images to whichever client is going to get them. If it's fine art, then I have to output them in a way that, you know, galleries who carry my work or poster shops who carry my work would do it. If I'm going to put it into a book, I have to output it for an editor. Right. So I, I share the images and uh, I do that in a variety of ways. If it's just got to be really quick, I just make a very quick web gallery and aperture, mm -hmm. connect it to my .Mac account. And I can literally within 20 minutes of of importing a card, I can have a web gallery online ready for an editor to look at and tell me which image he wants. Right, right, and that's the that's the. <laughs> it's changed a lot over the last uh, ten years. Oh yeah, I mean, I I used to work with Jim Bryant at the Post Intelligencer here in Seattle, and we we'd have to go develop film after the game. Right. <laughs> Right, and then you have to look. You used to have to look with it with the little loop and the. Yeah, we'd know, have to sit there. This lady had a, a film lab, and she'd give us the keys to it. And she'd be closed. We'd go in and use her processor, develop film, sit there and look at the the strips and negatives right there in 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 her little you know lab, and then we'd call out the ones we thought the editor would want, and we'd have to get a courier to take them over to the editor, and then he'd look at them and decide which ones he wanted to print, and then he'd call us, and we'd print them while we were there in the lab. It's kind of crazy what we used to go through. Now it's boom, real quick. Yeah. And if yeah. I'm going to do something uh, you know, real special with it, I'll use some third-party applications. One of my favorites is Photomagico. Uh -huh. uh, now, what's Photomagico do? Photomagico is a slideshow program. Okay. 
and I'll export – you can export your files in the latest version of Photomagico right from Aperture into Photomagico. And it's a much more um, sophisticated slide program than you can use in Aperture. One of the disadvantages of Aperture, and I've complained to my buddies at Apple about this, and I know they're working on it, but you can't save the slideshow and export it. Yeah. In, in other words, somebody's got to have Aperture and, and yeah. you know, to see it. Yeah. Um, and, and so with Photomagico, you can create a runtime standalone module that will run on both Windows and Macs. Right. That's, uh, That's basically fantastic. A quick, it's basically a QuickTime movie. Right, right. And you can put sound with it and some of the most sophisticated, you know, you can get Ken Burns on steroids in that puppy. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. So I'll share I'll share it that way. You know, that's one of my favorite ways to share for clients. Then they'll tell me what they think. Um, you know, I have used a couple of the new things like Animoto. That's kind of cute. If you just want to make a quick impression, it's not very easy to pick, you know, serious images out of that. But if you just want to impress somebody that you know what you're doing, that's a way to do it. Right. Um, I don't so much go with online things like Flickr and such because uh, I'm, I've just had too many issues trying to protect my uh, copyrights. People just seem to think if you put it on Flickr, it's theirs to do whatever they wish, no matter what rights management you check. So right. uh, I, I don't put very many images on Flickr, probably less than one one hundredth of one percent. Right, right. Any uh, last tips? Yeah, the, I guess my number one tip with regard to workflow is think it through commit to it and stick to it for a while. Uh, right. I have too many people that change their workflow like they change their socks. Right. And, and it's never going to work for you if you keep trying to tweak it. Get something that works for you. You don't have to use mine or anybody else's. Figure out what you like and then you know, get consistent about it and say, right. okay, I'm going to do it like this every time for at least a couple of months right. and really get a feel for it. And then you can think about tweaking it here or there. But don't just change it because you want to change it or because that – you know, somebody gave a seminar and, and you saw the latest cool thing and you feel like you have to implement it. If what you got's working for you, don't worry about well, it. Well, and it's a, it's a very personal thing, too. I mean, everybody's got sure. their own approach to it. So I repeat, there is no right or wrong workflow. <laughs> you know, there isn't. And I mean, obviously, we could go deeper. For instance, I get a lot of email about Aperture. What order should I do things in? Right. Again, that's personal choice. But I will mention that in Aperture, the bricks, the adjustment bricks are sort of laid out. In the in way the exact in the exact order that I think you should use them. Right. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, Scott. No problem. And we'll uh, we'll definitely uh, see you on and off. I know, we know that you're uh, you're going to be very busy in the new year, uh, so we will uh, hopefully have you on uh, fairly regularly. Yeah. Just follow me on uh, Twitter at Scott Bourne to figure out what I'm up to. Perfect. Thanks. So that's, uh, that's how Scott works with his photos. Now let's have a little bit of a discussion about how we work with our photos. Uh, the first question for all of you, and we, we've had questions about this in the past, is how do you, what, what, what type of cards? So do you, do, do, do you guys like to have lots of multiple cards or one big card when you're shooting? Uh, Personally, I, 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 uh, I go with a, with, a, with a small, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, maybe I'm paranoid, but I have small lots of small cards and i don't mind swapping them and in the in the d3 you know you can you can put two in there at a time so i tend to do uh the tandem writing so you know it'll fill up one card then spill over into the second card and then i'll you know swap cards and when you say small cards what what are you referring to two gig yeah i'm shooting with two gig cards Mm -hmm. steve 
Yeah, I um, I you know used to be. I'm a cautious guy. I'm a worst case scenario guy. But you know, I finally sort of realized that those little uh, compact flashcards are are so reliable. You know, knock on wood, they're they're well built. And and I went to the eight gig. Um, card because I realized that, uh, you know what, I, I put my, my trust in it. I don't um, use DVDs uh, anymore, haven't for a long time to back up. So, you know, it sort of makes sense if you're going to take that four gigs from a four gig card and burn to a DVD. Mm-hmm. I suppose I could use a multi uh, or a both, you know, dual sided DVD. But no, I, I, I realized that uh, those compact flash cards are probably the most reliable part of the digital photography chain. And, um, you know, I just, I just, I'm shooting raw, 12 megapixels. Someday when I have D3X, maybe I'll even upgrade to, uh, I'll probably stay with 8, but maybe go to 16. Ron, how do you, what what size cards do you use? I kind of, I, I, well, I I tend to use whatever I have because I've got a few older ones laying around too. But, you know, my typical scenario is toss the bigger card in there, the 8 gig. I kind of, I had an interesting conversation at Photokina, I guess, two years ago with a couple of pro photographers and uh, um, Bill Frakes, who's uh, Newsweek Sports Illustrated, you know, a high-end photographer, really well-known. And I asked him that question, and, uh, and I think I've talked about that on the show here, and his point was kind of, you know, he felt that the risk of switching cards in the field and the opportunity for dropping it or, you know, the rain coming in while he was doing all that, that was, you know, a higher risk than just having a card, a bigger card in there. And so his, his thinking was put a big card in there and you don't, have, don't ever have to open up the door, hopefully, uh, and you can shoot to that. And that's kind of my theory, too, is it, it's, you know, it's a pretty reliable thing. And, you know, just keep it in the camera and leave it there and wait until you're right. back home before you switch it out. And Aaron, are you a big card or a little card person? Um, I'm more of a multi-card person. I'm two and four gig cards. Though I think our definition of small cards is going to keep increasing as our you know right. megapixels increase too. You know, I yeah. I have been a two gig card until I came here, and I was just on set. I just felt like I'm going to be on set a lot. I'm not going to, sh- and I don't know how often I'm going to be connected to my computer. And so I went ahead and bought an eight gig card. And I have to admit, it was like it's it's like heaven. To yeah, me, to be able to not to not think about it at all. I mean, I just shoot all day. You know, for me. Uh, I'll shoot, you know, because with eight gigs in raw format on my little, you know, I still have a 20D. I'm still in this last, the last throws of deciding what I'm going to get next. And, um, you know, I have 897 photos. And I think the worst I've done in a, in a given day is I got to 800 um, a couple days uh, in a row of, of, of photos that I shot that, that day. And, well, and now the one thing to know is that I'm walking around with three cameras generally, like two little pocket cameras and a time-lapse camera and my still camera. So the big camera is not used all the time, but I found that I didn't have to offload. The biggest problem that I have is making sure that I have eight gigs available <laughs> on my laptop. Uh, to, yeah. You know, that's the, that's the bigger issue is when I want to import. I noticed that with two gig cards, I always, oh, I got two gigs and I throw it in there. Eight gigs, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that kind of fills up my, my drive quickly. And, and it's not so much that I'll run out of space, but I'll get so low that things become less stable. If I, because uh, a lot of times I'm hovering around 10 gigs or 15 gigs of, of uh, space. So I think the eight gigs is mostly that it surprises me that I'm running out of uh, that I'm running out of space on my on my computer. Which brings us up to: Do you guys? How do you guys import stuff? Do you do you use? Uh, Guys, can I just ask, just Alex, before you get into that, I just had a quick question for you because I was curious. I was curious about this. We're talking about you know workflow. Um, generally speaking, just generally speaking, short answer: when you're using your DSLR, 
Um, I tend to use uh, Aperture Priority Automation, and I tend to use the histogram and exposure compensation uh, controls to kind of alter from the camera setting. How do you guys uh, shoot in the field? Same thing. Say Say that again. Uh, I tend to be aperture priority using the exposure compensation uh, to compensate uh, the automatic and and looking at the histogram. Yeah, I I do pretty much the same thing. Most of the time when I'm shooting, when I'm shooting a lot very quickly, I'm on aperture priority because aperture to me is the most important thing. I, 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 you know, I'll switch to manual if I feel like aperture priority is, is doing something goofy. You know, that's the, usually if I have, if I have a complicated scene in front of me and I can't figure it out, I'll start, I'll start bracketing in manual to make sure that I'm getting, or if I'm shooting panoramas or, and then I shoot a lot of technical stuff for modeling, for 3D modeling, which it's much better for us to have the same exposure uh, all all the way across. And so those are the, my approach. Other, you guys? I I tend to stay, I'm pretty much just like Steve. I'll stay with uh, aperture priority and uh, fiddle with the exposure compensation. And I also find myself going to, or more and more with this new camera, going to the uh, fiddling with the ISO as well. So, you know, depending on how much light I need to scoop in there. But yeah, the the most important thing to me, just like you, Alex, is depth of field or, you know, depending on what I'm shooting, but generally it's depth of field. So it's aperture priority for me. Yeah, I, f- I find it interesting that ISO has really become the, the you know, the, the next wheel. Yeah. yeah, the third mm-hmm. wheel. I mean, it used to be really it was just aperture shutter and you just go back and forth. And now it really is something that you just, I'm constantly changing my ISO. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's such a luxury when you come from film you know, mm-hmm. that, to be able to do it. And some of, these, some of these cameras have been really good about putting ISO right on the top controls of the camera. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, how do you do? How do you get your images off? So, what do you use to? Do you copy them over to a drive, or do you actually use uh, Aperture, or Lightroom, or other software to import them? Well, me personally, I, I uh, pop the cards out and stick them in a card reader and import them directly into Lightroom, and have I have Lightroom. You know, depending on if I'm in the field or not. So if I'm in the field somewhere and I have my MacBook Pro with me, I'm going to import into a library, a Lightroom library, a brand new library for that particular shoot. Then I'll do, you know, like say I'm in Japan like you, Alex. I do my cropping, you know, color correction and all that stuff there, maybe some rudimentary keywording. Um, When I get back home, then I'll import that library into my main library, which lives on the Drobo. So, right. you know, when, yeah, when I'm in the field, I'll create a little satellite library in Lightroom and then import that into my main library of Congress sort of library when I get home and then delete the one off the MacBook. Right. Very good. And I, I just to, to follow up, I, similar to, to Fred, uh, only um, I will, <coughs> excuse me, import into Aperture. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, I've got a, a general preset um, with uh, some basic information there, copyright, et cetera, and I've got room for... For captions and keywords, I'll try and do whatever I can and um, import everything. And then um, later on, I would uh, transfer <coughs> excuse me, um, a project from the field uh, and import it into my, my main library. Ron, Aaron, how do, you, how do you handle it? Go for it, Ron. Uh, well, uh, I, yeah, so I, um, I, I mean, in the field for me, I, most of my photography is still when I travel. So I tend to do hardly any kind of tagging or organizing while I'm in the field. So for me, it's just, you know, assuming I have a laptop with me, it's uh, assuming I've got a laptop with me, I'll go ahead and just, you know, use a card reader, download it all, 
uh, and kind of not do anything. Well, actually, usually I'll download it all and then try to make a backup if I've got an extra drive with me or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, generally just get it onto the computer and wait until I get back home before I start doing anything to it. Right. Um, first thing I do when I get back home is actually run it through a, a renamer uh, and rename all the files to have some naming scheme that's related to the date that it was date and time that it was taken. So I have a truly unique uh, name on every single image that I've taken. It's actually a really good idea. I haven't really done that. And I know that it's one of my frustrations is just that the, the names are kind of random. And now well, that and, I've, and, and now that I've, I've looped, just, I've, I've, I've got, I finally got one over the whatever. I think it's the 10,000 in, uh, on yeah. my, uh, on my, my 20 D and so now everything now I, I theoretically have duplicates, right? It, it, that's exactly it. And that's really yeah. what kind of drove me to that is, you know, I, I ended up with, I started with files that were duplicate. I'd search for something in the spotlight to try and track something down. And, uh, you know, it's just like, and especially, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll travel with friends and I'll get their, you know, a bunch of their photos as well. So there's even more chance of an overlap and, you know, overlap from, you know, photos I shot years and years ago. And now, so do you import, do you, do you import just, them into Aperture and then change the names, or do you? I, I do think you, I mean Aperture. I know Aperture will you let Lightroom? you do some shaming, but I, I no, I use Aperture still. But I, I, um, I, I, name, I rename them before doing any import. I, I think right. Aperture, you know, has the ability. Yeah, you, to you really don't need to do that, Ron. I mean, really, when it comes to it, if you're importing it into Aperture, and I'm sure Fred will say Lightroom similar, um, you can you can basically take uh, control of all the images that you import. You could batch change them at any time. You can easily change the names. You don't even have to change the names because you can have other information embedded that would make it easier to search and, and tag and find. Uh, but I think, I think a lot of that's trusting the, the and this is just a, a is trusting the, the, the file system, right? This is exactly my point, and I, I could go off on this for quite some time, so I'll try to <laughs> I don't trust any file organization software and it's nothing you know nothing against aperture or lightroom or you know any of the other you, ones you out had there. a bad experience with a file organization it's, software when you were it's a kid. not even that i mean I, I have had problems on occasion but <laughs> when i was a kid yeah um <laughs> no it's it's you know uh, who knows where this stuff's going to be in 20 years uh, and and so my entire workflow is based on the theory that uh, i want to have the files organized on disk in a standard operating system, you know, file structure that is sensible to me so that if, you know, for me, if Aperture disappeared tomorrow, it was just wiped from the face of the earth and nobody knew quite where those bits had gone, I would still have an organized photo library. So everything I do in Aperture is used to organize files, but ultimately uh, is reflected back by an organization on disk that puts them where they want to be. And, and so they're not. You know, and so the just, files are the files are referenced. Not you, what you're not doing with with Aperture is letting it just import them all into its own library. Right. Yeah. I've uh, everything is just referenced in place. It's brought in, and uh, you know I mean, what I tend to do. And, and this is kind of getting down to the weeds, but we should all kind of talk about what we do. But I, uh, you know, I, I treat raw files like negatives, and I treat. Uh, and then I, I basically make prints of everything. Right. So I have a directory of JPEGs. That is sort of my processed stuff, but I organize both of them on the file system as well. Hmm. Uh, so I have kind of my master's directory where I keep everything. It's still organized. In my case, I organize it sort of by um, by location more than anything. So I actually have subdirectories for countries and, and stuff inside of it. But, you know, 
I'm not convinced that's even the best way. I, if I had it to do it over again, I might just do it by date or something. But right. um, yeah, so I have my raw files in one place, and then I bring it through Aperture, and I spit out my process stuff that's got all the tweaks I want it, and put those out to JPEGs, and those are also organized on disk. So I can use Aperture to find my stuff, but I can also just use the file system. I can use the Finder um, to find stuff just as easily. Right. Aaron, how do you handle yours? Um, <clears throat> mine's kind of a mixture of some of all of what you all said, and but maybe a little bit more aligned with Ron in terms of wanting to keep things really clean at the file system level and not putting you know ultimate faith in, in the application I'm using. The one little thing I'll mention a little differently that, that others didn't was I do carry a lot of the times, and this depends partly on the importance of the shoot. I mean, is in particularly if I'm on a paid job, I don't want to be leaving there with, with much risk to the imagery. So a lot of times I'll be dumping my cards in the field to uh, like an Epson P3000, not necessarily that I'm freeing the card up for use. In fact, most times I won't because I'll carry a lot of cards. I'm just not leaving the scene until I have two copies. And I have the ones on the card which go back into a case and are sealed up till I get home. And then I have another copy of everything that's on those cards on my little Epson photo vault. And when I get home, I can import from either. I mean, off the cards of the photo vault, they're going to be the same at that point because they're raw. But um, I'll pull them in, and I'll use Lightroom to pull them in. And I'll actually have Lightroom also uh, tag the dates onto the file names so that so that I don't have what you were describing earlier, too, of you know, if I flip 10,000 or something on a certain model camera that I start having duplicates and it starts tagging, you know, ones and twos and stuff on the ends. So uh, that will at least make the file names unique because it includes down to the second, you know, in, the, in yep. the, what it appends to the file name. Um, but I do bring them all in. I, like Ron said, I treat them as negative. So I bring them all into one location and then I may immediately then replicate that onto additional hard drives that I've got here, you know, Drobo type of things, situations like that, so that I've really got multiple copies of all of it. Um, you know, on the cards, on the machine, and on a photo vault, you know, until I get to such a point that I know I have some editing done, that things are duplicated, things are backed up, that kind of thing. Right. No, no, Fred, that's the, a really good point. Just, just the whole backup idea that I didn't mention, but I, I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate the fact that, you know, when I'm in the field too, I'll often uh, use as my main aperture library, I'll have that on a on a hard drive, a little FireWire drive, and I, I'm not really comfortable unless I do have two copies um, leaving the field, just just in case. And it it just makes sense to. Well, in 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 our office, the the saying, of course, I think I've said this before in the show, is that no nothing exists until it exists in two places. Yeah. And 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 for us, it's two different drives, and and with really important stuff, two different literally physical locations. If you really have something, you you need to keep. <laughs> you you don't want it in the in the same place. Uh, now, Fred, the, the with Lightroom, the you can ref, you can do the same thing where you could set up your own file structure if you wanted to, and just have Lightroom look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, and it it Lightroom, you know, the way that I have mine set up is it's similar to what Ron's doing. So I have a hierarchy on my Drobo that I can view in Finder. It's you know folders and within folders, you know, with my my personal structure that I can look at without any other application whenever I need to. But within Lightroom, um, I just I point it at that folder structure and it replicates that inside the application. And when you make changes, it asks you to, you know, are you if you want to delete something from your library, it'll say this is going to delete this permanently from your hard disk. Do you are you sure you want to do this? And right. it will delete them. But it's it's not it's not the concept of say like an iPhoto where it's importing into its own special sort of database and you can't get at the stuff. Is actually looking at the Finder or looking at the the file structure in Finder, and when I import files into Lightroom, 
I'm doing all that. I have templates set up or presets set up on import that add, you know, my like Steve was saying, that add my copyright information um, and whatever keywords like it, you know, if it's a if it's a photo walk or something, I have a photo walk preset so that, you know, it's going to add certain keywords to that so that I don't have to do that over and over again. Right. And rename them, you know, but whatever sort of whatever way I want to form that. So normally I go you know, I'll have it give me a, an input field for a custom name. So I'll say, okay, I'm photo walking in San Francisco on the Embarcadero. So this will be Embarcadero, and then I'll have Lightroom append to that the date and a sequence number starting, you know, a three-digit sequence number. Right. And then the, then the extension, and then that's it. So I'm done. I just import, and all those files are, are automatically imported, placed into a subdirectory, on my Drobo that it builds that I can also see in Finder, right. and everybody's happy. Right, and the one thing to know, by the way, this is a little trick for those of us, for those who are listening who have iPhoto, something that Fred mentioned, is, is that there is a trick to, uh, that some people don't know about uh, these kind of uh, file structures, on at least on the Mac, is that you can right-click or control-click on the library, the iPhoto library. And then, by the way, don't do this and start messing with this. If you do it and you and, and it screws up the whole system, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm warning you right, right now. You know, proceed at your own risk with what Alex is about to tell you to but do. What I'm about Apple, to tell you, Apple will say, "Don't do this. Don't ever do what I what I'm telling you. Don't put anything into it." But here's the thing: is that there have been times when, for some reason, iPhoto didn't launch, or I couldn't, or I had you know pieces of it. It's for a variety of reasons. If you need to get into that, pull a, a file out. Uh, I've had uh, I've had a couple instances where iPhoto became the database became uh, until I figured out how to fix it the database became uh, corrupted and it was and it wasn't working this is a long time ago but what I figured out how to do is to right click or control click and, and these are packages so they're not uh, you, the applications actually the applications that are on a Mac are packages and so if you right click on them and say show package contents and you'll see a folder and inside there it's just a regular folder structure and it's got all the stuff and all the organizational stuff now if you change anything in there it could really screw up really screw things up so it's not something you want to go this is like uh, do not cross the beams you know but if you are in a pinch the one thing to know is that a lot of people feel like if they throw stuff into aperture or into iphoto and those applications cease to exist or cease to work or cease to whatever that they lose access to their to their their photos the photos are not encrypted in some weird sort of way they're simply encased inside of a package and they could always be extracted back out just it would be very painful (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the misnomer that some people have with right. you know these new ways of doing things. They it's some sort of mystery as to where everything goes. But you know, as you mentioned, when you you um, right click and and see that within the package, uh, within your traditional folders, your raw files are living there. It's not uh, it's not the end of the world. You can always take them out that way. But but you you it's not recommended. Yeah, and 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 it's one of those things that I think part of this is. A decision as to whether you're gonna you're gonna really buy into something or not, because there are advantages to just following a system. So, for instance, with Aperture, with the Vault system or whatever, let it import everything, let it organize it on the way in, uh, identify where you're gonna back it up, and let it let it do all of those things for you. And for some people, I think, especially if you're organizationally challenged, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that that process might be. Uh, might be more effective <laughs> letting, the, letting the computer do it for you uh, because you're not going to do it. 
you know, so that's the, and I think for some photographers, I mean, I think a lot of photographers can be very, you know, a lot of, a lot of us can be, you know, we're working on other things, but that's not, that's not part of the, the workflow that we want to think about. I think a lot of people misunderstand the correlation between um, the organizational things that happen with inside Aperture and Lightroom and the reality of the files themselves. And that's kind of what we're talking around here. But, you know, when I do an import of could be thousands of images from a shoot, um, for the most part, they're going to end up in in a named folder and a raw folder inside of that that's got all those images sitting in it. Um, And on the hard drive, it's just a very, very simple dump of files that are in a folder that's recognizable as having been that shoot. But when you look at it within Lightroom, I may have those organized in a different ways, different categories of selects and different groupings of photos. And that does not represent duplicates of those physical photos. And it doesn't represent a folder structure on the hard drive that represents what you see in Lightroom. Right. There's still just one big pile of files sitting in one heap somewhere under one name that's easy to back up, easy to move around and so on. All that other organizational stuff that's happening within Lightroom is happening completely within Lightroom. Which is also the scary part. If you've done all this organization, you've done all this work, then you have to be careful that, you know, because that's going to be the thing that you do have you do need it to go because you don't want to go back to just a bunch of raw files right yeah maybe yeah. like you had it in a book you had it in a nice book all orderly and then someone shook out the book and just threw them into the into the pile that's the other kind of scary part of this yeah the bigger the bigger the volume that you shoot you know the the more you appreciate uh, applications like aperture and lightroom because it it really does allow you to sort of keep control of everything and and allow you to do extensive searching to find images beyond just you know the dates and and so on so if, if you if you're a shooter that's been you know really prolific um, it could be a huge uh, time saving uh, for you and a great advantage to to move to to one of those those programs no absolutely question. absolutely now do you, how do you guys back stuff up as you're working how do you what where do you back it up that's that's a scary question because my stuff right now is it's it's on my Drobo um, and then I have a second Drobo that I mirror the first Drobo onto but the problem that I have right now is both of those Drobos are under the same roof so if something catastrophic happens you know here uh, I'm out of luck so I need to add some sort of off-site uh, you know backup to my mix and I don't know if that's in the cloud or if well, it's just physically carrying a drive to a friend's house or something like that but yeah you, you could have uh, you could have uh, you could have a mixture you just get a friend and they have your Drobo you have their Drobo uh, and and you just they, now and Drobo I believe now has for instance an R-Sync hmm. that will uh, that will actually automatically sync these over a LAN or a WAN but see the problem. The problem. Yeah, that's that's what I need. The problem is uh, with doing the friend backup route. Is uh, I won't do it. You know, <laughs> so yep. I need I need something that's gonna have be relatively in my face or or not. You know, and just be completely passive and just happens in the background. Well, no, that, that's the thing. What you need is, I mean, because what what I'm I, I, and I've talked about this on the show, and it's been this kind of slow process because one of the things I didn't want to do is is you know I have these two Drobos and they're mostly the sit. They're mostly the same now. You know, they're, they're two Drobos with mostly the same information. Uh, mm-hmm. And but the one thing I don't want to do is separate them until I've kind of finished the organization. You know, because I'm probably going to blow one away and put the and recopy the other one. So I've been reorganizing it, making sure that every folder is where it, where I want it to be and everything else. And then I'm going to you know have two that are identical, and then it's just small changes after that. And uh, for me, you know, mine is 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 going to be at the house, and, and I'm 40 miles away from from San Francisco, so. Uh, now I can you know, have one there, one, one in, in the office, and simply have it doing a sync 
uh, an R-Sync. The process that I tested uh, was just the R-Sync, which is just a, a, a Unix command that'll, that'll make sure that all the files are the same. But I think that there are tools now on the Drobo that will allow you to uh, to do that without without needing that, um, but you don't need uh, Drobo either. I mean, it's just any any set of uh, two sets of drives. But I think having them in two different places is is important. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I would three. use uh, a managed system with with Aperture, even though you know it sort of makes sense maybe to have a reference system. But uh, a managed system means that all my archive for that library live within that library. But then I can use the simplicity of the vault system, which means I just have to press a button. It backs up to a vault on a different drive. And I do, I'm in the process, like a lot of us are, of, of kind of organizing. And again, it's end of year. There's the perfect time to sort of get things organized. And I plan to um, consolidate several libraries into less than several libraries and right. just have a, a tight... Uh, a strong archive where I know it, where everything is, get rid of uh, duplicate stuff, finally get really organized, and then have, uh, you know, the one Drobo either with, with probably with my vault, and then have another vault uh, with the, from or several vaults from the different libraries on a, on a different uh, Drobo that will be off-site. Or I may not even use the vault. I may just copy directly the, the actual library because, you know, I'm not going to update that off-site thing, I don't think, more than once or twice a month. Or sorry, once a month is more realistic. So, yeah. so you know, having having a system now is a good time to really kind of figure out a system going forward. I think. Well, and I think that I think one of the things that's important. I know that with my uh, this happens every time I get a new computer. I got a new computer about a month ago. I got a new a new laptop, and uh, every time I get a new laptop, which for me happens about once every year and a half, it's my opportunity to rethink my my file structures because <laughs> I don't I don't ever bring the old computer back over to the new computer the old computer i i i, I keep put the the internal drive into a uh into an enclosure so i can always access the old one in, in in this case right now i'm in japan and my old computer is in my old computer's drive is in an enclosure that's connected to another drive that's on the internet so i can actually use screen sharing to go find anything that i forgot that i should have put on this computer and so that's how i kind of you know keep things Manage, but one of the things that's really important that I find with with any of this stuff is to think about all the things that you're doing as best you can, and then build a system that that kind of is ongoingly organizing itself. A lot of people who do organizational stuff will often talk about uh, you just have to have the right number of shelves and 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 rules for where the where things go as you bring them in, not oh, I'm going to sort through them later. I know for me, that's the biggest problem. If I go into, a, I'm going to sort through it later, I go through so much stuff and I, and I think, oh, when my life slows down a little bit, I'll catch up. And uh, that never yeah. happens. How's that going? It, uh, yeah, that never happens. Exactly. <laughs> At this yeah, point, I think I, if my life goes to less than 80 hours a week, I would, I would sit down and sort through it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I, this is an important thing to recognize is that some stuff may never get done. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the other thing, though, is to know that that is to be ready to say, you know, like, for instance, one of my rules uh, that I that I made with the new computer watching my old computer, uh, you know, you know, having this constant trouble with my desktop is that nothing uh, stays on my desktop. So anytime I have downtime, if I'm on a train, bus, plane uh, and every night I take everything off my desktop and put it in folders. Desktop you know, zero. Sorry? 
Yeah, desktop. It's like inbox zero. You need desktop zero. Yeah, which I desktop agree with zero. That's it's just, what I you just move everything out because I'll, I will forget what that was. You know, and I don't have folders where I just throw j- lots of junk into. I have folders. You know, I have a lot of folder structures in my documents folder on my on my Mac, and I simply, you know, I'm pushing it all, you know, into the, into those folders um, to make sure that they stay grouped with whatever I was working on. And then, literally, anytime I have slow time, if someone's late for a meeting, if someone's hasn't come for lunch, or if I'm you know, waiting for a plane or waiting for, you know, whatever it is, I'm constantly going through my, my folder structures and, and, and just moving stuff around and reorganizing it because, uh, I just know that there's never going to be a time to catch up. Yeah. Anybody yeah. using time machine at all? No, absolutely. You are? <laughs> I oh, do. No one is. So no. Aaron, you use time machine? Yep. Well, for my general machine use, so I don't rely on it for managing my photos because most of my photos are on external drives anyway. Right. Okay. But um, but I I do find Time Machine to be a, a very handy thing um, to have on hand. And you were mentioning too how you pull the drives out of your laptops when you upgrade, and I upgrade my laptops fairly frequently too. I take a little different approach in that I I image the old laptop into a uh, to a drive image of that uh, on a Mac. It's like a, a DMG file, essentially, oh, yeah. that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And I'll store that on one of my external large drives, and it could be there for a year. Right. Because uh, I, too, I don't copy a laptop over. I build a new one, from, you know, fresh, just to climb a clean house. But right. I have that old one for reference. I just open that DMG file and mount the old drive anytime I like, mm-hmm. and I'll pluck out that little preference file or that something that I didn't think of at the time that, right. I, that I found I need later. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a great way to do it, too, because it's, you know, it, systems just tend to get a little bit crufty after a while, and having a chance to start fresh but still be able to grab stuff that you forgot is is a nice way to go. I think of it as, uh, I, I think, I'm, see, I'm an Eastern philosophy major, so I think of a new laptop as a new life. You know, this is all reincarnation, you know, based on based on what I learned on my last life. I now have a new life, a new one. I don't want to bring the old life. I don't want to bring the old life forward. I just want a new life. It's a do over. I agree. I like that idea, but (laughs) it makes a lot of sense. What what Aaron said is that DMG. uh, The DMG is a great idea. How do you do that? How do you do that? Is it complicated? Uh, you can use disk utility that comes with OS 10 to do it. You can, yeah. well, and, and the key, though, is target disk mode because you, know, you can't do it on the running system itself. So when you get your new laptop, you boot it up, and you, you take your old one and put it in target disk mode, and it, it attaches as a FireWire drive then. Oh, that, that I do know. But if I, don't, if I want to start fresh like Alex and yet maintain that DMG uh, sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, everything that was on the original, is there a way to do that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what, what I was describing. Do. Basically, is that oh, it is. use the new yeah use the new machine. You boot up your new machine. You put your old machine in target disk mode, so it just becomes a FireWire drive, and you attach it to your to your new machine, so that your new machine can then image the drive off your old machine using Disk Utility, or another app whose name I'll mention here is called Super Duper on the yeah. Mac, which is incredibly handy. And there's, there's plenty of this on the PC too. So if you're listening, if you others, if you think that this this show is slowly turning into Mac Break uh, Weekly. Um, the, uh, the, the there is a lot of the stuff on the PC as well. There's definitely lots of disk uh, duping utilities there. I just had a, I had a quick question. So, am I the only one? Because you know, Alex, you mentioned the whole reincarnation thing. You get your your new machine and it's a fresh start. But I, over the years, have been sort of refining the way that I like my Mac and what's in there and whittling off the the rough edges. And you know, it's a work in progress. So when I get a new machine. I use the migration utility and suck all that stuff off the old Mac and put it on the new Mac and just keep going. You know, I don't I don't look at it as a fresh start. I look at it as, oh, a new body, you know, <laughs> but with my that same soul. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that for me, the reason that I, I, um, I, I don't do that is I, I like to, to consciously think about what I'm doing and when I, when I move forward. I, I just yeah, wanted don't, to, this, don't you have like you know an application directory now that's full of a gazillion apps that you download? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But You're yeah, a, I do, but I go through it just like Alex during downtime. I go through it from time okay. to time and weed all that that stuff out of there. And know? I have to. Yeah. You're, you're more organized than a lot of people because I I find that you know before I know it I open that closet and see what I've got in my laptop and go you know what I'd rather not even look at. <laughs> <laughs> I just start fresh and then just get what I really need because a lot of that stuff I somehow downloaded and never used and right. yada yada. So I want to I want a fresh start. And I have to admit yeah. I'm I'm in a, a little bit of an ivory tower that I have I have the most effective guy to install stuff you know in our office Alutha and uh, Alutha does <laughs> I just hand Alutha the laptop <laughs> you know so I get a new laptop I don't even see the laptop for the first week like I'll, I'll order a laptop and I just hand it to Alutha and I go so I need you to you know anything that's in the dock i need you to install i need you to do this and, da, da, da. and then i go away and then i don't think about my computer my computer for another week and then I, I get it back and it's all it's all working all right so i'm so. coming to visit next time i get a new laptop <laughs> yeah it is awesome because alutha is like the the uh the, the master of you know the very careful installs and the clean install and doing all the right things and making sure that everything's working and i don't have the uh, attention for that now to hey, get back to photography I, though yeah I, can i get back to one thing with yeah. the, the backup stuff we didn't really talk about it a whole lot um is the uh uh, and a backup to the cloud, which um, See, I, I always, want to mention this. I'm, I'm always interested in that, and then I'm always scared of it at the same time. I think maybe well, some of our listeners are the same way. Scared of it for security reasons or uh, from yeah, relying I mean, just, on it? Uh, I, I think that digital railroad is a good example of yeah, you know, yeah. cloud sort of. That was actually, I was getting close to cloud, to putting my stuff up on a cloud, and then I saw that, and I was like, ooh, I don't know well, if I want so, to do that. So what I do, and I, I just discovered this new uh, new solution that I'm really liking right now. So I'm going to go ahead and plug them. Um, I talked about this on MacBreak too the other week, Alex. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a software, or I guess a solution called Backblaze. And it is, you know, sort of a background process that continuously, if you want, uploads your files to the cloud. Uh, it can be as secure as you want it. So you can actually give it an encryption key on your end uh, so that it, you know, encrypts the files prior to them leaving your computer. Right. Of course, if you forget that key, then you're screwed because they have no way of recovering it either. It's a very secure uh, right. encryption that they use. But, uh, you know, what, what it does is, I mean, what I've done so far, I've just had it implemented on my laptop and pretty much my entire laptop is now uh, more or less imaged up to the cloud. They don't let you back up everything. So some of the system files that are right. just part of a standard OS install, they, they won't let you back it up just mm -hmm. probably for space. But the whole point of it, uh, the reason why I, I went with this solution is it's unlimited uh, disk space on the cloud for $5 a month. Wow. And uh, so, you know, 50 bucks a year, 60 bucks a year, uh, you have a solution where you can have stuff up there. Now, the, the downside to this, of course, is how do you get all your stuff up there and how long does that take? Right. I should and, do that from my hotel right now. Well, I, it, that is exactly right. That's why I, I did it from you know my office at Amazon, where we've got you know mad bandwidth, right. and I was able to get my my whole you know laptop or at least uh, over lunch. Yeah, you know, probably about <laughs> yeah, probably about sixty or seventy gigs, um, uh, you know, up onto the up onto the cloud in a matter of a couple of days. But you know, if you're willing to to take the time to let it do it, it's not, and it's kind of time machine like in the sense that they do carry a history as well so as stuff is being updated uh you can actually say oh you know what i need to download this file from three weeks ago 
Not the right. current version that's on my machine, but I want to download you know the Word file from three weeks ago that I worked on. Right. Uh, it's I think it's only a month for Backblaze, so you know I'm hoping that they extend that as well, so it's a right. much longer history. Yeah. But Interesting. so far, I'm I'm really liking it. Seems reliable. It's Mac or PC. Right. And uh, well, and that's one of the things that I I've been looking at doing is getting to a point where I have all my presentations. I do a lot of the same presentations over and over again, and I tweak them for every event. But I have the you know I start with this kind of skeleton of how to do something, one thing or another in, in Keynote. And uh, so I have my keynote presentations and I have, you know, lots of photos that I like to use our PR business cards, you know, that type of stuff. Like all of that would be a great thing to put on the, in a, in a cloud area. And for me, I have that all on my .Mac account. <laughs> so, right. so that's, you right. know, I have on my .Mac account, I have all of that set up there so that I can, uh, I can go up there. I can grab, you know, any of that stuff. When someone asks me for my headshot uh, or a bio or, or my cards or, or the logo or whatever, all that stuff sitting up there that, that I can just kind of grab really quickly quickly and uh and move it on or send someone just a link you know to uh yep. to download some of the stuff that's that's important so um now i think we're, we're actually you know we we're running out of time <laughs> so yeah. so we've, we've we've talked this one uh into the ground there and uh it's probably gonna be one of our longest shows in history um the last thing next week we're, we're talking about resolutions so yes. like new year's resolutions new year's resolutions resolution of your camera Exactly. No resolution of the camera. We're going to talk about New Year's resolutions what, related to photography, of course, uh, not to uh, all the other things in our life. And so, so that's coming up next week. Uh, coming between weeks, there's not going to be anything. We're going to have uh, New Year's, and, and I'm going to fly home. I'm, I'm going to be in the office next week. Pretty excited about the Yay. whole thing. Maybe I can, uh, maybe I can scare uh, uh, Fred to come up and, uh, and hang out at the office with us for the, next, for the shoot next Friday. I think I might do that. Excellent. And uh, so we'll, uh, we'll be doing that from, uh, from the studio. And uh, the tip of the week coming in from Paul Merritt. And he's, this is, uh, the Paul, Paul said he's, he's currently plotting through his 10,000 mistakes and uh, thought he would, uh, uh, he would look at this one. Um, thought he would uh, uh, share the latest. So he goes, I'm currently on ho- holidays at the beach. I've been looking uh, forward to this moment and thought, about some of the great shots to take, grab my new lens after that I've been lusting after, and to imagine my disappointment when I realize that my main camera has dust on the sensor. So his suggestion is do some calibration shots of a blue sky or something bright around two weeks before your big trip uh, to make sure that if you uh, are seeing any dots, uh, that you can you can sort those out. And, and that's a that's a, that's a good tip. You know, a lot of people don't know that they have a lot of dust on their sensor. Uh, because either you're taking things in front of a complicated area, and this is if you're using an SLR, of course, or the uh, the other thing that that happens is that if you're shooting a lot with a a large aperture, so a small number like 1.4, 1.8, 2.8, you may not see them. You know, you may not see the yep. dust on the sensor because it's so blurred out. I, I noticed that I I didn't notice I had dust on on my sensor for a while because I I you know I rarely when I'm shooting with my camera. Uh, unless I'm doing technical shots, if I'm just shooting pictures of people, I rarely go over 3.5, uh, and and oftentimes I'm I live in kind of the 1.8 uh, range. But is that is that dust on the sensor or dust on your lens at that point? I mean, the focus well, shouldn't really. And I guess that would that. be that would be the that would be the thing to check. I'm pretty sure that that you notice it. Uh, I've assumed that it was on my sensor. It's on the sensor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's because uh, when you turn up the aperture, I mean, I cleaned my. Uh, clean my lens backwards and forward, and uh, th- and the it was still there. I'm, I'm assuming it's on the sensor. I have to now get a um, 
you know, get... You'll see it in the same spot across multiple lenses at high ISO. Yeah. So, yes. or not high ISO, higher. but high aperture, sorry. Yeah, higher Ooh. aperture. So, so the, so if you're, um, I, I do believe that that's on the sensor. And so the, the big thing is turn up, you know, not only shoot something bright, but turn it up to, uh, you know, 16, you know, you know whatever your, 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 your smallest aperture is, uh, and, uh, and take a picture and you're going to get a real good vision of what, if you take it of a white card or, or a white wall, uh, make sure that it's, it's very even and you're not like, doesn't have a texture to it. And you'll, you'll see pretty quickly where you have some uh and that, this is not an advertisement for the many companies that make sensing swabs sensor swabs uh, if you didn't have dirt on the sensor before you went to the beach you will when you get back yeah and, and if and, and the reality is if you're switching lenses it's going to eventually happen you're going to have to figure out a way to to clean your sensor Whether, salt hair scares me more than anything with my camera yeah you know i not with not, not as much with my still camera but someone was going to borrow we were working on this film actually and uh they, they wanted to use my 950, my, my big uh, video camera. And uh, it's an expensive camera, uh, very expensive. And uh, they and, and I said, sure, you know, that, that makes sense. It'll save us some money. And then they said, and then we're going to shoot these pickup shots, these background shots on, in, on, the, on the beach in Santa Monica. And I was like, uh, er, um, <laughs> I don't think I want my camera anywhere near salt water. <laughs> you know, so that's the, yeah. So if you're going to somewhere like that, dusty, dusty areas, uh, sandy areas, uh, all that stuff, you're going to end up with stuff all over your camera, right? And all inside it. <laughs> and all inside it. So, so, but the main thing is, is make sure to check for that because it is a bummer if you take, you take all these holiday photos or a wedding or whatever you're taking pictures of and it turns out there's a little dot on all of it. Um, do you guys have any way of handling that? I think that's a really good point that was brought up, and that is to, to, you know, once in a while, when you have a little time, not last minute, because you're busy when you're getting ready for a trip, is to do a little test and make sure that uh, your sensor is clean. And uh, I, I basically will use one of those devices, like a visible dust brush that seems to work. Right. But if it doesn't work, then I'll maybe bring the camera in. I'm a little nervous about uh, putting any kind of liquid on my sensor. I, I just have never done it, so I haven't uh, right. learned to do it properly. Right. Ron, how do you clean your sensor? Uh, I haven't cleaned my... I, I did clean an older camera sensor once, and and then I, I cleaned it again because I screwed it up the first time. Right. Uh, it, it is a little bit of a scale. I mean, we had a, a nice sort of sensor cleaning kit with the, you know, put the little drops on the brush and do it, and you look in and you're like, ooh, that doesn't look any better. Right. Uh, but eventually you kind of get to it. Uh, you know, the, the best cleaning, the best solution to cleaning is not let it get dirty in the first place, obviously. Right, right. Fred, how do you how do you do your how do you clean your? Uh, I, I try to be extremely careful with the cameras. Uh, the D seven hundred has a little, you know, the little uh, sensor cleaning shake em a jigger in there. Um, but you know, I have never, you know, I'll be honest, I've never tried to manually clean my sensor. I'll either send a, you know send the camera out and have it done. Uh, mm -hmm. But I I feel like if I the minute I try to go in there, I'm gonna screw something up and just end up with a big paperweight. So it, it, it does it does feel like when I, I I've done it a couple times actually, and and in Africa is specifically the place that I've I've needed to do it uh, a couple times, and it does feel like you're diffusing a nu nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah, and I'd rather you know, and it's 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 uh, liability as well because if I screw it up, I'm I'm screwed. Right. But if if Nikon screws it up, they'll yeah. give me another camera. Exactly, so. exactly. Aaron, <laughs> how, Aaron, how do you clean yours? Um, I've used um, I'm gonna use an air blower for the light stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely take the precautions of 
changing lenses uh, very quickly, you know, camera body pointed down in the cleanest environment I can, things right. like that. Right. Um, but I have cleaned my sensor multiple times with uh, clips and the sensor swab, the liquid sensor swab. And mm -hmm. it is pretty terrifying, you know, the first time you do it. But um, I've gotten through it and it's gone well and it's done nothing but improve the situation. Right. And I've had problems, so I wouldn't be too scared of it. Very good. But uh, do be careful with it. Now, Aaron, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at uh, halfpress.com is my blog, and you can find me on the Twitters as halfpress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S. -S. And, and by the way, for the listeners, as, as Scott is backing off a little bit, we're bringing Aaron. Aaron has been the producer since almost the beginning, almost day one, and, uh, and we're bringing him on more and more just to be a, just another host. So uh, we're really glad to have you, Aaron. Glad to be here. Thanks. Fred, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on the Twitters at Frederick Van. They can find me on my blog at FrederickVan.com or on my little video podcast, which oh. is you can just search Frederick Van on iTunes and I'll pop up. There you go. Ron, where can people find you? Uh, Ron Brinkman on Twitter or DigitalComposting.com. Perfect. And Steve? Uh, SteveSimonPhoto.com as well as uh, Twitter slash Steve Simon. Perfect. Until next week, you can take that lens cap right off, go out there, get shooting. <laughs>